Politics Considered, the show in which we discuss some things political. I'm your host, Bill Gallagher. On today's show, we will be discussing Israel, including the current conflict in Gaza and controversial actions by the current Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. I am thrilled to have as a special guest today, Mr. Moshe Chertoff, joining us from Kibbutz Shamrat in Western Galilee in Northern Israel. Mr. Chertoff is former vice chair for media and policy of Democrats abroad Israel and Palestinian territories. He co-hosts the Israel Slippery Slope podcast on YouTube. He is a co-founder of a new social democratic and Zionist movement. He was active for years at high levels in the Moretz political party. Mr. Chertoff is one of the least scripted people I have interviewed. I will interview. <laughs> and I have no idea what he is going to say, which I like. Any disagreements will be civil and not adversarial. Today, we'll be discussing a bit of history and the current status quo in Israel. And on the next show, we will talk about solutions to the current crisis and prospects for the future. Welcome to the show, Mr. Chertoff. I appreciate you taking the time to join us. I know you're very, very busy, and I know it's a late where you are. So I appreciate you being here. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here with you. Hello to all of our listeners. Hello, Shalom Salam. Call me Moshe. I understand you had an interesting life, including living on a kibbutz. So just tell us about yourself. Okay. Well, interesting to one person is probably boring to somebody else, but <laughs> we'll start off. Uh, I orig- originate from LA and uh, San Fernando Valley in Santa Monica Beach. I went to uh, reform Temple Beth Hillel in the San Fernando Valley. In the period back then in the uh, 60s, it became apparent that black is beautiful. And I started thinking about why isn't Jewish beautiful? What's what's the story here? So how can I become a part of the beauty in, Ju- in Judaism? So I joined a socialist Zionist youth movement, and I came to Israel for the first time in 1971. The name of the movement is Hashomer Hatzair, which means the young guard. I also tried various things. For instance, I tried being religious and going into Chabad and then realized that, wait a second, why am I doing this if I don't believe in God? After having come to Israel and stood up against the Western Wall and trying to absorb what I'm actually touching, you know, the the walls of what used to be the only walls that are left of what was the temple a couple thousand years ago, a guy came up to me with his uh, ultra-Orthodox style of dress and everything and a prayer book, and he showed me that inside the prayer book there was a note that said, if you put $5 in my pocket, I'll give you a special blessing. And that was when I realized that, uh uh-uh, this isn't for me, it doesn't talk to me, there's no sense in my trying to play this game of being religious. I'm out of it. I'm done. So I came came back to LA, went to Chicago for a year. Then in 1974, I came to live on on a kibbutz, which is a socialist community in Israel in 74. Uh, There I found the love of my life, and we're still together until today. I did two years of basic duty in the IDF, and then we took a a couple of, a year and a half to start a new kibbutz in the Negev Desert in in 1981. I got sent to Beirut in the uh, IDF, in framework of the IDF in the first Lebanese war in 82, came home and we had our first uh, child, and then we came home to our kibbutz. I was among the founders of the Israel Softball League. I was a tractor-trailer operator, like every good Jewish boy. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I got into high-tech work at at Microsoft, Johnson Johnson, and others, and eventually I became an ecological, social, anti-racism, and political activist. So before we get into a lot of the specifics, um, did you have a chance to listen to my interview with Mohammed Othman from the West Bank? I not only had a chance, I very much enjoyed it, so much that I actually gave Mohammed a call after the interview and we talked. Really? Yep. Yeah, and we had a few, first of all, we got to love each other on the phone. It was fabulous. 
Nice. Because the guy is a wonderful spirit. He has some either mistakes or misgivings or lack of knowledge of certain things, which is pretty much, I'm sure, what he would say about me. So that's okay. He he has a problem uh, when he relates to the green line ceasefire. He doesn't really... Uh, he says it in a different... Coming from his narrative, you can understand it, but uh, most Israelis would not agree with that. But that's not necessarily important right now. Every time uh, he said something about every time that a Palestinian comes into the country as a, as a civil rights or human rights activist, they get arrested. That's not the case. But on the other hand, Israel is still responsible for the um, security of its citizens. And so they check people at the airport who they think, and unfortunately, they abuse it. And yes, many Palestinians have been abused at the airports or other places of entry into the country. Do you believe him when he says he was a political prisoner? But uh, not as much of a political prisoner, but more of the fact that he's a Palestinian. He could be the most wonderful guy in the world and a, and a peace activist and think nothing but of, of love of Israel. It doesn't matter. Well, isn't that political? Because all he did was he yes. spoke out on the BDS. And OK, so. Yes, if you could call it political, but the, the background is more of a national problem. In other words, it doesn't matter what he would have said. The fact that he was Palestinian and he spoke up or spoke out and was being heard by many, the Israeli government and through the army didn't want that to happen. Since 1967, there have been attempts of people uh, trying to get things together and be proactive to help society move on. And they were jailed okay. also. So you agree it was unjustified? Absolutely. I don't have a good segue for this, but Israel has roughly, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, 54 political parties, of which 12 have seats in the Knesset. I understand you were involved in merits, and I assume this means that you were registered with that party. I'm not exactly sure how it works, but according to their website, they were sort of like on the Zionist left of the Israeli political map, and they support social equality, granting Israeli Arabs equal rights, and the two state solution. And I also understand that the Merit's party did not reach the threshold to have any members of parliament. That's pretty recent. And Likud, the largest right-wing party that Prime Minister Netanyahu leads, has the most members of Knesset. And it seems that the majority of Knesset is controlled by members of the right, maybe far right. And in 1999, Merit's had 10 members of parliament compared to 19 for Likud. Now Likud has 32 and Meretz has none. What happened with Meretz and pro-peace parties in general? I've never been so humiliated in my life. A party that's been in the Knesset since 1948 all of a sudden fell below the minimal threshold. The reasons for it are many. It's very, very sad. You need 3.25% of the, of the voters to get into the Knesset. We were lacking only 8,000 voters, and we would have been in the Knesset. Even if we had made it into the Knesset, that wouldn't have changed the mathematics of who, the, who, who are the members now of the current Israeli government, as opposed to those of us who are in the opposition. But notice that it took five elections to get to this point. We'd been on the map. We'd been powerful. We even had ministers in in the fourth election. We actually succeeded in creating a government, which Netanyahu was not capable of in the first three. In the fourth, we had an alternative government in which my friends were actually ministers in the Israeli government and moving things forward that we thought were important. But yes, it was together with some right-wingers who were very simply anti-Netanyahu. So it's, I have to warn all of, all of our listeners now, this is going to be very, very complex. And if you, you're worried that you're not going to understand all this, don't worry. Most Israelis don't understand all this. It's so <laughs> complex. Did the voters who were part of Merits, did they move to other left-wing parties or did things just move to the right? 
Or is it okay. more complicated so, than that? So what happened was people were tired of, they'd, they'd given up on supporting us over and over around the threshold number and said, oh, I'm not going to do this anymore. You might drop out, of, be out in, in which case my book gets thrown away. So I'll get into something which is bigger and won't possibly fall off the map. So they'll vote right. for a centrist party. The centrist parties don't have a real agenda other than opposing Netanyahu. They don't have any real ideology. But a lot of people were very angry that, let's say, we didn't do enough against the occupation. So they went to the left. They went to the mostly Arab parties who are absolutely anti-occupation. So were we. But we didn't put that as the most important thing for us to do. So there were those who went to the left. There were those who went to the right. There were those who couldn't stand our uh, elected leader because she's been the leader before and they'd had enough of her. There were all sorts of reasons that people left. And now it's the same case with the Labor Party. The Labor Party right now is polling at about 2.6 to 2.8% they are most likely not going to cut it. In which case, the four of us, we had four members of Knesset, the four of theirs that exist now, there's going to be a vacuum of approximately, uh, people who voted for approximately eight members of Knesset. And that's one of the reasons that I'm actually trying to form something else, something new, that will be, will fill the vacuum of the entire left of Israel. If I can, I'd rather have all of the current opposition, or shall we call it the democratic camp, that you know, something else just popped into my head, and I was wondering if Israeli politicians have moved to the right or the Israeli people. You know, in the United States, the right is overrepresented in Congress and the United States Senate and gerrymandering, minority rule, and all that. So, have Israeli politicians moved so far to the right, or are the Israeli people as far to the right as the politicians in the Knesset? Yes, on both questions. (laughs) So in other words, both of them are the case. It's good that you brought up the American equivalent of what's happening, because I have found throughout the last few years, especially since just before Trump came into power in the States, that the Likud party in Israel and the Republican party in the United States are almost exactly the same in their lack of ideals or their crazy ideas, their parallel universe. They're not really caring about democratic procedures So I put them together and I actually call both of them by the same name with two branches. They are of the Likud and the Republicans, they are the Likudnikans. And (laughs) make make it is it make Israel great again? No, <laughs> no. actually, I think that uh, Trump learned a lot from Bibi because Bibi has been in power since more or less 1999, almost entire, the entire time. But just like in the United States, the Likud is it got them the most votes, most members of Knesset of all of the parties, but not a majority. And right. he cannot, he constantly has a way of speaking where he plays with your mind. Netanyahu says one thing and means the other, and eventually it becomes true. We won the majority. No, you didn't. Yeah, I just want to clarify if the PR proportional representation is a lot different than first past the post where, you know, there's just two parties and and one person can get a plurality and win and we only have two choices essentially and you have you can have a lot of parties and they have to right. coalesce. Having 54 parties doesn't mean that it's good and having two parties doesn't mean that it's good. Neither of them are working very well as I think we've all seen. Neither the American political system nor the Israeli political system. I contend that for the Israeli political scene and for the voters to relax and finally get down to business, we're going to need approximately 9 million parties, which is well, a more or less the number of people that we have. And Moshe, we, yeah. It is interesting. Maybe Israel is an outlier, but PR systems, especially in Western Europe, like in the Netherlands, are associated with higher democracy scores than first past the post. We can talk about if, if there's some peculiarities or some certain, you know, idiosyncrasies. Right. Well, to give you, to give you a, a, a little, there's this saying that goes, if there's two, between two Jews, there's going to be three opinions. 
Yeah. That's, a, that's a standard. We, we have a tendency to always pick apart what's going on and really look for how to improve it and whatever. So I, after, the, after we have 9 million parties, even if I had my own party, there would be division in my party. So it's hard to get people to actually agree on things. Their structure and the, the topics are so diverse and so widespread. Whoa. It's so you, so you, you brought up Trump and Netanyahu, and I heard an interview, uh, Netanyahu, in the, in the U.S. press right after Trump had a known white Christian nationalist anti-Semite yep. dining in his home. He knew he was an yeah, anti-Semite. Trump is a, for dinner. Why not? <laughs> right. But here's the thing. Trump has aligned himself with anti-Semites. Netanyahu was asked about this, and Netanyahu was like, well, he and Jared have done good things. And so with Netanyahu, do any means justify the ends? Netanyahu will do anything he can to stay in power, number one. He understands, number two, that to stay in power and to have the money behind his various organizations, not his party, but the various uh, parapolitical organizations, he has to get tremendous, and he's successful at it, tremendous amounts of donations from the 22% of American Jews who are right-wing. The 76% of American Jews actually voted Democratic in 2020, and he'll do anything he can, and they are very successful in gaining in raking up tremendous amounts, billions of dollars to help pay for all sorts of things in the West Bank in occupation. And uh, the left has never really succeeded in doing that. We've been in sort of a down spirit in kind of uh, the doldrums since Itzhak Rabin was assassinated. It's like they took a wind out of us and we haven't and been I, able to bring ourselves back up. I do want to talk about his assassination later. But since we're talking about, you know, U.S.-Israel relations, I'd like to play a clip from an NPR podcast, Left, Right and Center. The person speaking is Sarah Isger. She is with the Federalist Society. You know, she's conservative. She was uh, in the Trump administration. So I'm just going to play this, and then I want to get your reaction. What in the world was President Biden thinking, weighing in on another country's domestic policy questions? Um, you know, I think that when it comes to the very specific question of Israelis, uh, you know, judicial reform suggestions here that, by the way, have, as you said, um, at this point at least been delayed, if not shelved, um, you know, basically, I think... Both sides have missed some of the forest for the trees. It's a much bigger fight than the actual changes being talked about in some ways, like so many of our fights are, by the way. You have to understand the domestic politics, the lack of a written constitution, the last 30 years of Israeli, you know, domestic politics. And so this idea that you can just, you know, wade into some country's very specific piece of legislation uh, and have some strong opinion about it. Can you imagine if Israel or Great Britain or anything else tried that with us? We'd we'd laugh at them slash keep scorn on them um, for waiting. You think Biden that. should have kept his mouth shut here. Yes, of course. And your reaction, sir? I'm glad she giggled when she started off because it, I was trying to hold myself back from laughing throughout the entire uh, uh, statement of hers. It's like if Israel ever tried that with us, with the U.S. Lady, excuse me, where were you living when Netanyahu got himself invited through the Republican opposition to take over a joint session of Congress and speak there against the policies of a serving president of the United States like behind his back and yeah. talk about the policies 
it, internal policies it, and foreign policies of the United States in terms of possibly one of the most controversial issues for both Israel, but also in particular for the United States, and that is the Iranian nuclear development. And you're going to say that he's wrong and you are right? And she, she also said, can you imagine if any European leaders and pretty much all of the European leaders uh, weighed in after Roe v. Wade was overturned, uh, the UK prime minister, the Canadian prime minister. So and I uh, uh, this is a, a typical case of the tail wagging the dog. BB ref constantly refuses to believe that the United States is more important or anyone is more important than Israel. It, there's a complex that goes with uh, having come out of the Holocaust, where we're pretty much justified to do anything we need to or want to. And this is a problem in almost everywhere we go with the right wing. And uh, I think that very simply, they learned the wrong lessons from the Holocaust, which lead them to believe that as a result of the Holocaust, we're not going to let anybody raise their heads. We're going to, done, you know, people, that's it. We're going to be the strongest anywhere. Yeah, I mean, she said that Biden should not be able to comment on what Israel does. Now, given that the U.S. provides $3.3 billion, exactly. <laughs> so, so do you think he should be able to weigh in? Not should be. I think he must weigh in. I think that he must do it very carefully. But when it comes to very critical, critical cooperation between the two allies, which are supposed, it's supposedly built on our common ethics and common uh, basis of existence— the democracy in particular, but not only the democracy. Are we? Is he? Is he going to allow Israel just to go and attack? Let's say uh, uh, Jordan. We have a peace agreement with Jordan. He's going to let Israel go and attack Jordan because whatever. I mean, come on. I'd like to hear from Biden something that I think is missing, and that is that there have been Jewish pogroms in the last few weeks as a result of what's been going on in the West Bank. It's a tit for tat that's been going on for a few weeks now. Can you imagine that the Jewish community of Pittsburgh? would organize themselves to go out and attack the community of the murderer of those people in the Pittsburgh synagogue. I mean, Jews don't do that in America. That's not a normal thing of, of modern Judaism. Right. Really? He should be speaking up about this and saying, BB, you either have to put a cap on this or you're going to have to get them out of there. When asked about this surge of often deadly anti-Semitic violence on the same show, the Pittsburgh synagogue shootings that you mentioned, and this just really dangerous right-wing, uh, you know, anti-Semitism fueled by the internet, Isger falsely claimed that there is just as much anti-Semitism on the left, and she engaged in whataboutism. She said that anyone in Congress, she actually said this, she said that anyone in Congress who criticized Israel is anti-Semitic. So I guess that would include Senator Bernie Sanders, practicing Jew. And there just seems to be a lot of gaslighting where instead of just addressing the white Christian nationalism and the right wing anti-Semitism, the right just throws this word anti-Semitism around like a club. And then I think it's tragic to water down this very profound word, right? I mean, so what's your take on all of this? They're appealing to that 22% base that we were talking about. They want to enlarge it, obviously. But I think it was very clear when Trump said that there were People, good people on both sides back in Charlottesville. I mean, everybody scratched their heads for a second and said, what did he just say? Are you serious? Neo-Nazis? They're good. Come on. So that's number one. It's been happening for a long time in terms of the left. I apologize if I understood you wrong, Ms. Izgur, but on the left, there are very few people who are actually anti-Semites. And we have to make a very clear distinction between being anti-Israeli government policy 
and being anti-Semitic. Thank I'll, you. I'll, uh, yeah, I, you're welcome. <laughs> Anytime. I, I'll ask you. <laughs> I'll ask you. When I opposed the Trump administration's policies, did that make me anti-American? No, not at all. And most of Europe, when I went to Ireland, they're like, "What's up with half of your country? They love us. They they embraced me." And you know, I'm Irish American Gallagher. But yeah, I mean, it's it's just ridiculous. And and the inverse is also true, and they don't recognize that. Were they allowed to uh, actually? Uh, oppose the policies of our uh, alternative government while we existed for a year and a half? What does that make them? Does that make them anti-Israeli? No. Well, when Isger was pressed about anti-Semitism, and nobody gave any pushback on the show, which bothered me a little bit, yeah. Yeah. but she said, oh, there was some lecture in Berkeley years ago, and there was like a graduate student seminar, and somebody said something. Well, that's... That is different, okay? No, I'm not saying there aren't anti-Semites on the list. Right, but, but I, yeah, but I think we agree that talking about something in the abstract in a university setting, that's not where these people are becoming radicalized. This is happening on the internet, these shootings, right? It, correct. They're not it's going to Berkeley. Developing. Right, right. But, but, uh, but there, we have to understand that there is a narrative which is being, let's put it this way. I hold the government of Israel responsible for pushing American Jews in particular and American liberals and progressives away from Israel. Why would they want to support us? We've had 57 years to end our occupation in one way or another. And I will speak out of the box here. You're right wing. You've been controlling the country since 1977, except for a couple of intervals, short intervals. Okay, go ahead, annex it. You really think that it was the left, it was us that were preventing you from annexing it? You know you can't annex it, because if you do, you've just cut yourselves off from all democratic societies throughout the world. So okay. let's either annex it or get out of there. And I say we have to leave occupied territory, not for the Palestinians and for Israel. Since you brought up progressive, I want to talk about PEP. And I just learned this, and I Googled it, and it's been around for a while. There's a Wikipedia page. It's progressives except for Palestine. And MSNBC Mehdi Hassan recently said, quote, progressives' hearts bleed for Syrians, Libyans, Afghans, Iraqis, Rwandans, Kosovars, but not for Palestinians, end quote. And most European politicians seem to recognize that support for Israel and concern for Palestinians are not mutually exclusive. And U.S. politicians on the right and left actually excoriated Ben and Jerry's for helping the BDS boycott divest sanctions. And so they faced a huge backlash and threats from politicians, including Democrats, then New York Mayor Bill de Blasio, and then recently politicians, including Democrats in New York, went ballistic after a Palestinian law school graduate gave a commencement address at Cooney Law School in the city. And even a very progressive congressman, Richie Torres, called her crazed. I think Torres would probably be considered a pep. I just want to quote this law school graduate. Okay, this is, and, and she was invited to speak. What she said is, quote, I want to celebrate Cooney Law as one of the few, if not the only law school to make a public statement defending the right of its students to organize and speak speak out against Israeli settler colonialism, period. The students gave her a lot of applause, but after the fact, there was this, this huge backlash. She got death threats, she was harassed, and her words were strong, but it's free speech at a public university. Your thoughts? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to go out of the box again here. I think that, first of all, people have to understand that to actually be pro-Israeli, you also have to be pro-Palestinian and vice versa because I have bad news for anybody who's either for one or the other. If one side wins, both sides lose. The only way this will end 
and I will be able to go to Hebron with an invitation from my friends there, and I do have friends there, and the only way that they'll be, I'll be able to invite them to come and pray at the fourth holiest uh, mosque in all of Islam, which is three kilometers from me in Israel in the city, old ancient city of Akko, is when we both recognize each other's right to exist, and therefore, I feel that to actually be pro, you have to be po pro of both sides. Her statement, we have to understand really what occupation, where it begins and what it is. If we say, if we understand that even East Jerusalem is occupied territory, but it was annexed into the municipality of Jerusalem and not into Israel proper, we have to understand those are 21 villages. It's not a part of Jerusalem. And the Palestinians living there have a very difficult time with their lives because they used to go to the, the mukhtar of their, of their village, the main man of the village, and get a building permit. And the man, main man knew, okay, we have that plot, whatever. Today, they have to go to the Jewish-Israeli Jerusalem municipality, and they're abused. They're saying, nope, you can't build. So everything they build becomes illegal. And we'll, we'll get into solutions when we talk next week. So I want to get into the big news in Israel right now, and I don't even know where it stands as of this hour. Prime Minister Netanyahu's efforts to radically reshape the judiciary, consolidate power. It seemed to be a little on hold after protests, which I think you were involved in, and now it seems to be moving forward. There is opposition in Knesset. The National Unity Party chairman, Benny Gantz, said uh, about Netanyahu, he said he is, quote, once again drunk with power. He also said that, quote, if the judicial coup resumes, we'll shake the country and bring it to a halt. So what do you think about Netanyahu's plans, the protest, and where it stands now? Okay, first of all, we have to recognize the fact that whatever Netanyahu says is not really what he means. So when he says he's putting it on hold, it wasn't on hold. That was to cool things down, to try to make us maybe think that actually he's being liberal about this. Maybe he's actually reconsidering about this. He didn't put it on hold. And he's going full speed ahead because he knows he has to not only please his Likud voters, but in his coalition, he's got some of the most crazy people in all of Israel, some people who are, are the most radical right you've ever met or don't hope not to meet. And to do that, he's got to keep pushing forward with this. This whole judicial reform, as he calls it, and we call it by a much worse name, is actually just a smokescreen. And I didn't believe this when I heard it for the first time, but I heard it from a former member of Knesset and, and uh, minister who said, all of this is a smokescreen. What really is happening is the settlers are going to be pushing the Palestinians to violence. And once they become violent and they rise up against what they call price tag attacks from the settlers, then the army and the government are going to be justified in not only putting down that part of what we could call it an uprising, but they're going to try to kick out the Palestinians out of Palestine. Now, we know that there are two roads that are the big roads in, in the occupied territories. One is north-south, one is east-west. Once Israel has total control of those roads, then there almost cannot be a contiguous Palestinian state. It'll be divided into four, and Israel will have control of all of that. So this is actually what this whole thing is about. It's not about the judicial reform. All of you people who are democratic in the United States, for the one time I could actually think about, you should be really proud of Israelis. Did you see what happened when he actually fired his, or tried to fire, his minister of defense, which is a right-winger also from his own party? Within a half hour, there were over 200,000 Israelis who spilled into the streets spontaneously. It was amazing. The American equivalent of 200,000 people in the streets is just over 6,700,000 Americans showing up in one hour spontaneously. It's insanely amazing. It seems to me that in terms of people like you protesting and engaging in politics, the democracy, at least as you say, among the people in Israel, may be more robust than here. First of all, is 
Israeli democracy is not only in danger, it's, um, it's, it's under full attack. And even though it is really only the smokescreen, it is really in danger. I mean, I'm having discussions with uh, friends of mine, and I have friends from the right, and I have discussions with them and try to make it clear to them. The president of the country, who is this fig uh, figurehead, he's not really uh, holding any political power. He invited the two sides of the current government and the opposition, and we call ourselves the Democratic camp, to come to his uh, White House of Israel, the home of the president in Israel, and start negotiating. And all of us who are on the left are saying, negotiate? While this guy's got his hands around our neck and is choking us, and he's got a knife in his other hand, and he's about to cut off, you know, what of ours? You don't negotiate with somebody in that condition. You say, put down the knife, put down the, okay, you put down the knife. Now, let go of my neck. Okay, now take back everything you did, which is just an attack, a crazy, crazy attack on everything that's been the basis of this country. And now we can negotiate. Otherwise, Who's going to negotiate about this? So it is definitely under under attack. And I wouldn't say that uh, Israelis are necessarily more democratic in our basic beliefs than Americans, but you just haven't been put to the test like this. This is an right. onslaught that it, within a few weeks, they were passing 50 some odd bills out of 150 bills. It was one after the other. And you've looked into the committees. Nobody's allowed to talk against well, them. Well, we were put to the test with an insurrection. Yes, but that was how many hours? But it's ongoing. Yeah, I just wonder if you... So it sounds like what you're saying is that Israel is more at risk for losing their democracy than the U.S. because we have some checks and balances. And You have more. We only have two. You have three. How you use them or how you abuse them is something else. In the States, you have the legislative branch, you have the ex executive branch, and you have the judicial. One can offset the other or just check the other, which is okay. Everything can go fine. In Israel, the legislative and the executive are one. In other words, the people who get elected into the Knesset are the people who uh, elect the prime minister. So that's one. And then you have the judiciary. If you start taking the air out of the judiciary, as they want to do, as they're trying to do, even today, they're trying to get rid of the uh, special counsels, the uh, call it attorney generals of the individual ministries. And once you do that, any minister can bring up anything he wants. And he can just say, I'm going to be taking all of the Palestinians. He can do anything he wants. And there's no check on it because the people who will be in the Supreme Court will be their people. I've heard people in Israel refer to it as a theocracy. And I heard people complaining about high taxes that disproportionately go to settlement communities. I read that 25% of the Israeli budget is going to the West Bank settlements. I also heard that, you know, there was an extreme heat wave earlier this month and that the ultradox towns and settlements did not suffer. So they had to like do brownouts in other areas. And, uh, you know, I, I heard that the excuse was they needed to cook for Shabbat since it was Friday, but the people that were complaining said they also need to cook for Shabbat. Correct me if I'm wrong, that um, the ultra-Orthodox were not required to self-quarantine during COVID because of weddings and funerals, but those who were not from had to quarantine and could not have weddings and funerals. Is that, am I right on that? Well, in general, Israel has a, a many, many, many good laws. It's always been the problem in implementing and being the uh, policing of all of these different things. There are areas of ultra-Orthodox where the police just can't walk right in. They'll be attacked. I mean, attacked in terms of fire, you know, uh, petrol bombs being thrown at them, Molotov cocktails. They can't just do anything they want. Those in the ultra-Orthodox areas or those who are Orthodox, not just ultra-Orthodox, those who observe the Shabbat, I'm in favor of letting them have some sort of a special allocation of, of electricity before the Shabbat, because the difference is when the Shabbat enters, I can still keep cooking. They can't. But I think that everybody in the country, all citizens of the country should be equal and they should have equal opportunities at electricity at everything. 
And so obviously, if they need help, I'm happy to have them to help them out, just like the Palestinian Israeli communities need help. And they, I think they, they should be given help also. They've been uh, neglected for many, many years. And even I, it, it, neglected sounds passive. They've been denied basic rights of economic rights that Jewish Israelis have in the villages, as opposed to in Jewish cities, and therefore their their villages are a mess. If we ever gave them the actual rights to, for instance, one of the biggies is to create uh, industrial centers, that would pay for their city's uh, operation, but we don't give them the, the land for that. One that was going to be given to them got eventually, they said, no, 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 we're going to give that to the Jewish city up on the hill. We have to observe the rights and think of what people need, and it shouldn't be according to sector or according to your political party or anything else. This government is pushing us toward a autocratic theocracy. Yeah, that's I mean, the dangerous actually, part. Yeah, yeah, they made it. They made it illegal. You can serve six months in jail for playing a musical instrument near the Western Wall. What? Oh my God! Yes, yeah. or a woman dressing uh, inappropriately according to their standards. Oy. That's one of the main problems. Oh, that was a perfect uh, response. Oi. So, <laughs> so what's happening is. They've taken a monopoly on Judaism, and they have to understand something. This is a basic thing that many religious people throughout the world don't understand, and Bibi uses in his double talk. He says, I represent the Jewish people. No, you don't represent the Jewish people. You were not elected by any Jews anywhere else except everybody and all of the citizens of Israel, not just Jews. Why do you continue to talk to the Jewish people? You should be talking to the people in Israel, not the people of Israel, which we know refers to the Jews. And he consistently does that, and he mixes the terms, and people buy it, and they continue Isn't, to talk about it. Yeah. Are, I didn't mean to interrupt, but aren't there like 20% of Israelis that are Arab? Right. 21% are non-Jews, which are mostly Arab, Christian, Muslim, and then there are the Druze, which are separate. And then there are Cherkessim, who actually came from parts of the Soviet Union previously. So there are various types. And then there are just people who came from the United States, who various places who aren't necessarily Jewish. Hey, I'm an atheist. In the eyes of the Orthodox, I'm probably not Jewish either. So uh, I'm a secular Jew. Does that make you any less of a Jew? No. Yeah. Makes me less of a religious Orthodox Jew? Yes. But you're going to tell me that my children can't marry whoever they want? They have to marry according to your standards? I have to dress according to your standards? I have to observe the Shabbat? Did you know that this whole country comes to an absolute grinding stop the evening of Yom Kippur? You drive in the main roads connecting Jewish cities and you, you'll be stoned. By, there will be rocks thrown at you in tremendous amounts, including women on their way to the hospital to give birth, including all sorts of stuff. There is absolutely no justification for, and, and guess what? They're doing this on the holiest day of the year. I mean, that's your religion? Aren't yeah, you supposed I, to be respecting I, the religion? Irony is not strong enough a word. Um, nope. <laughs> so I, I just want to get some clarity on the term Zionism. I digged into this a little bit, and a 2018 American Jewish opinion survey found that 20% of U.S. Jews said they were not Zionist. President Biden called himself a Zionist when he visited Israel. And people often conflate Jews with Zionism and vice versa. So am I correct in saying that there are Jews who are not Zionists and Zionists who are not Jews? 100%. Okay. I just want you to help me understand this. And so to understand that, we have to find out first what each person's definition of Zionism is. My Zionism, I, I am a Zionist. I came to live in Israel. What would I have been done? What have I? Why would I have come to live here if I wasn't a Zionist? Because you know, I, I, there was this great real estate. No, I came here because I think that there should be a homeland for the Jewish people. 
My family was slaughtered in the Holocaust along with half of the Jewish people. And now today, as you and I are talking, hundreds of thousands of uh, Jews in Russia are considering upping and leaving quickly before anything really radical happens. And I'm not trying to make trouble in other places in the world, but we know where this has happened in, in other places where all of a sudden, for instance, in Hungary lately, where anti-Semitism raises its head. And all we need is a not a Jewish state, a democratic state, which is also the homeland of the Jewish people. In democratic state, I'm talking about equal rights and equal uh, responsibilities of everyone in the country. Everyone who's a citizen. That means we're going to have to include everybody in the army and give them reparations or, or, or actually give them pay. We're going to have to give them just as Jews get land once they've been in the army to build a house on. Druze today are fighting against the government for the first time in their history fighting against the Israeli government because they don't have rights as soldiers. They commit themselves to be uh, conscripted, but they don't get land. And, and their, their villages up in the most beautiful places of the Galilee are exploding because they can't build. So what are we talking about? I mean, there's so much prejudice. So are there and, some, and so, so you, I think you said soldiers are kind of rebelling. The Druze soldiers, which the Druze serve in the army, in the prison system, in the police department, and various okay. other places. They consider themselves, the Druze are very interesting, they consider themselves patriotic citizens of every country they live in. It's not just in Israel. They live in Lebanon, and they're patriotic Lebanese. They live in Syria, they're patriotic uh, uh, Syrians. Moshe, so, I think you're going to yeah. need to explain this a little better for me. How do you spell it? D-R-U-Z-E, Druze. This is an entire community, which actually or originated in Egypt and went to the other countries I just mentioned. They serve in all of the defense forces because they're considered and consider themselves patriotic citizens wherever they live. And therefore, there are some who have been generals in the Israeli army. And uh, I have a friend who's a member of Knesset from the Druze community. And he was, uh, a, they come, they're in all of our system throughout the country, including in our medical systems. I don't know if you know, but beyond 90% of the manpower in our, in our medical system throughout the whole country, in the, especially in the hospitals, are non-Jews. So they're not vigilante, they're paid and they're professionals. Okay. They don't get the equal rights that Jewish soldiers from the oh, same okay. unit get. That's, That's what I need a clarification and on. Up that. until now, they've been very quiet about it and very uh, passive. And all of a sudden, with everything that's been going on, and in particular since the nation state law was passed a couple of years ago, that made everybody other than Jews second-class citizens. The Judeo-centric uh, people and parties say, no, 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 we're just clarifying that Hebrew has to be the main language. No, you're not. I was, I was a, an advisor to a Muslim member of Knesset at the time, and he quit the Knesset. He was the first person who suffered from this nation-state law. He says, I can't continue being in the Knesset when they do something like this. Do you have to put your uh, religion on your identification and passport and all of that? Not anymore. Couldn't somebody just tell their boss or tell the police that they're Jewish? How, how does somebody know they're not Jewish? Well, first of all, unfortunately, you look at somebody and you know something about them. I look at you, I can tell that you're from Irish descent. You look at me, you can tell that I'm from uh, Belarusian descent. You how, do you know I'm, how do you know I'm not a convert? You, no, you could be, but I see you. And you can be a convert. But you know what? It depends on how you converted according to the ultra-Orthodox. Right, it, right. With the, yeah. So anyway, if you look at a person's face, a policeman, let's say a policeman stops somebody and he says, let me see your ID. That's illegal in the United States. There is no such thing as having to carry ID in the United States. It's a law in Israel. And so he presents the, the policeman with his ID card. His name is an Arabic name. His social residence in an Arab village, done. This guy's obviously 
He's an Arab. He's not Jewish. Right. But somebody like you could pass, even though you call yourself a non non-believer. And again, that depends on how we define Jew. So you're a secular right. Jew, so you wouldn't have the trouble. Well, depends. Again, <laughs> uh, I, I, I we do have trouble here and there. And that was one of the beginnings of this whole uprising against the judicial reform was there was a bus that was loading up people to go to a demonstration in Tel Aviv. It was stopped in Galilee. And a policeman came on board and he looked at everybody and he turned to the driver and said, where are you going? He says, we're, we're, I'm taking them to Tel Aviv. For what? He says, they're going to a demonstration. He said, hmm. Are there Jews and Arabs here? And someone jumped up and said, excuse me, what did you just ask? You have no right to ask that. He said, be quiet. I have a right to ask it. He said, no, you don't. What is it your business if anybody is either this or that? Did they commit a crime? Arrest them, interrogate them, take them off the bus, ask them a few questions. If they didn't do anything, put them back on the bus. What right do you have to do that? And we said, you know, that, that's not a democratic country. This is where people started waking up to the fact that this is very anti-democratic. So this police officer backed down? More or less, yeah. Yeah, he might have passed it on to other people that bus with a license number, this, that, and the other are going to Tel Aviv and there's Arabs on board. I don't know. Since you brought this up, I want to talk about the surge in violent crime of murders of Arabs. And I believe these are Arabs in, the, in Israel, right? Correct. So I'm just going to throw some stats out here and you can correct me if I'm wrong. So prior to 2000, it's about 50 years since the state was formed. There were 50 murders in all of that time, right? 50 murders. Mm -hmm. There have been 1,650 murders since 2000. Again, in, of Arab. Of Arabs in Israel, right? Okay. In, in 2021 alone, there were 120 murders. There were like 120 in 2022. And then as of mid-June of this year, there are already 109. And the point is there's a 300% increase over this time last year. And I understand that people are afraid to cooperate with police. A lot of this is gang related. I heard that people had to cancel weddings, get extra security. People have been robbed, had their wedding gifts robbed and parked cars and closed businesses. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand a lot of this is organized crime and gangs. Is that right? Number one, your statistics are correct. Unfortunately, it's extremely painful. I have many friends in the area who live in Arab villages. And today I heard of someone who was murdered in an Arab village where I have friends, and I want to call them and tell them how sad I am to hear about it. The thing is that when you have an entire community, and it's a very clear-cut thing, this entire community has been deprived of what it actually deserves throughout the years. Their education was deprived in terms of funding their home allotment, that they were deprived in the zoning sense. And what's happening is that they're suffering as usual in other, other countries around the world. The minorities are suffering more from unemployment than anybody else. Now, Especially the young, the young people, right? Because exactly. the young people go into the military and the Arabs, what do they have to do, right? They, they can't go into the military, correct? There are some who do, there are a few, but they're the exception. Now, the problem is that uh, what do you have to do? Not only that, you can't find a good job. And to have a good job, you have to have a good education. And since that was denied to you, many of them very simply turned to the easiest uh, way to make money. And that is for in the protection business. The problem is that there are so many guns that are stolen from the IDF and so many IDF soldiers who sell- And just to explain IDF, please. The Israeli Defense Forces. That's the name of our entire defense forces, Army, Navy, Air Force, et cetera. Who, who's stealing the guns from them? The Israeli Jews are stealing guns and okay. selling them. And to the Arabs? Are, yeah. Okay. Will buy them and they know that the Arabs, because you have a, a vicious circle here in which if you don't have a gun, your family might be at risk. So everybody's got a gun. And if you don't have one, you're in trouble. You could, you know, there are people who are 
mistakenly shot and murdered. There are people who are bystanders who are shot and murdered. And then there are all of these, there's this infighting among the crime organizations. That's the main one. But that's spiraling off into all sorts of bystanders and whatever. It's horrible. And combine that with the fact that it's being multiplied by you have the person who was given, and this is crazy, you got to think about this for a second. The guy who was given the job to be the minister of internal defense, he changed the name to national defense. This is a nationalistic thing. And he is the person who is the most Arab-hating person that existed until now. One of the leading people, a, a former follower of Rabbi Kahana, and a guy who thinks that the, that the Jewish American who came to live in Israel and murdered 29 Muslims in a, in a mosque, that's his hero. And this guy was just made the minister. To right. So, so he's the minister over like all of law enforcement or whatever you Within call it. Within Israel. Correct. Okay. Israel. What is his name? Uh, Itamar Ben Gvir, G-V-I-R. His main name, his last name is mentioned often. He's uh, a guy who, for instance, in his history, he had a picture taken with him holding the Cadillac insignia that he stole from Yitzhak Rabin's car before Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated. And when they filmed him holding it and he's smiling and joking about it, he says, we got this close to Rabin. We can get closer. And guess what? They did get closer. They had one who, guy who came, fired three shots and murdered him. Who appointed Gvir? Netanyahu. Okay. Netanyahu needed the extremist, organ, the extremist parties to be able to form his government. That's why he couldn't put a, a form a government in four previous elections. The only way he could have formed a government this time was to bring in the extremist settler, pro-settler, pro-occupation uh, parties as part of his government. You can't bring them in and not feed them. You have to feed them or they're going to say, wait a minute, if you don't give us this, we're going to leave the government and you are going to be out of a job. And that's what's happening. It's insane. Yeah. And finally, and the media the media doesn't cover it over here. I mean, I had to do some research. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's it's very very sad. It's it's that that isn't the worst part. Even before Ben Gvir, I won't give him all the credit for uh, all of this that's been happening. One of the worst examples of of how horrible it is is that in previous years there was a beach near the center of the country where an Arab was killed, murdered by another Arab, and it was never investigated. No one's ever been arrested for it. No one's ever served any time for it. On the same beach, there was a Jew who was murdered. And guess what? Within three days, they jailed the, the person who was suspected as the murderer. And it went to, it was investigated totally, went to court. And the guy's been, that's the case in, in these hundred and some odd citizens of the Arab community. We know that they were murdered, usually by other members of the Arab uh, society. We don't call it the Arab uh, sector anymore because that's sectoralizing things. We, but I've heard a lot of them are afraid to call the police. Right, yeah. because you live down the block from a lot of people who are dangerous criminals. You don't want to call the police and have have them identify you as the guy who snitched, right. who turned them in. And it's very likely that in the judicial system, they might get off on some, you know, little technical thing, in which case you got a guy living down the street who'd like to take you out. Yeah. So people are very careful about speaking out. Lots of people I know who are parents, they won't let their children out of the house after the sun goes down. Not that it's safe during the day. Sometimes it's not safe during the day. I don't, I'm not fearful of going into Arab villages. I do it quite often. But I have to think about it now that my wife is doing it. That's part of her job is going around interviewing people for the Ministry of uh, Health. Oh, but anyway, wow. I have to worry about her. I'm telling her, you've got to keep your eyes open. You've got to be careful. You can't just uh, wander around there. Go to the place you have to go to. And then when you leave, make sure you leave straight away. Don't wander around. I went to visit condolences visit in the city next door to me in Akko because a family had a young man who was murdered. He was one of the people in the crime organizations. Does that mean he deserves to be murdered? No. 
I mean, you have a proportional representation system in the Knesset. Are these 20% Arabs? Or do they have 20% of the seats? Or how? I mean, no, that's another problem we have. Uh, a friend of mine is the head of the largest party that represents the Arabs called Hadash. His name is Ayman Ode. I met with him this week and also a couple of weeks ago. We're developing some very interesting things for the future. But in any case, if you think that the merits and left wing Jews have uh, fallen out because they've just given up because it's just futile. We're not able to get anything done. The Arab sector or the Arab community is even in worse shape. It goes as to age. Those who are the older people, they almost always vote and they almost always vote for the Arab parties. Later, further down, the younger ones will most likely vote most of the time. And some of them might vote for Zionist parties and some of them not. And the young ones very simply don't vote. They don't care. Right. So you have proportional representation in air quotes or on paper, but there's not, everybody isn't like equally represented like in the Netherlands or something like that. No, and also, it, and it shouldn't be, by the way. I'm hoping that we're going to be putting new parties together that will ignore a person's uh, location or background or religion or any of the other choices of his life. Doesn't matter, her life. I, we don't need to do that. We need to have parties that have an agenda and an ideology that will help every citizen in the state move forward. It must not be sectorialized. And it's very sad. What's happened in the entire non-Jewish community is the young people aren't listening even to their parents anymore. This used to be a basic that no matter what you did, if your parents said, stay home, stay home, you'd stay home. If your parents said, we're going to vote, you're going to vote. You respect your elders all the way. Today, the parents have absolutely no control over the youth. It's extremely sad. They yeah. cannot stop them from going out and doing all sorts of things. I remember when friends of mine saw a group of uh, kids running out to stow thrones the, at the Jewish cars passing by in the Galilee once. And the father turned to his son as his son was about to leave the house. He said, if you leave the house right now, remember not to come back. If you go to join them and throw stones at anybody, forget it. You're out of here. You are not participating in that. Let's face it. The great majority of the Arab population in this country are good people and even patriotic to the country where they live. That doesn't mean they're Zionists. The member of Knesset that I was advisor for, he told me, you know, Moshe, I'm not a Zionist. I said, yeah, I know. He says, I can't be a Zionist. I'm, I know what happened to my family in 1948. That doesn't mean I don't love the state of Israel. Right. This is my home. I love this and would like to make this the best country in the world. But that gives the right wing the license to say, you see, he is anti-Israeli. He supports terror. He was actually called supporting terror. Because this happened actually, here after 9-11, if you didn't fly a flag and yeah. support, you were called, you know, anti-American. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's part of the populism that's been taking over most of the Western world. It happened in Brazil. It happened in Hungary. Hungary it happened in, it's happened in England. It's Turkey. Happened in it's happening yeah. all over yeah. the place. Yeah. The populists yeah. are taking over because part of what I said in the beginning of our interview was, this is all very, very, very complex. So are most of the issues in most of the countries. In Israel, it's even, you know, it's on steroids. But people, normal people, don't have the strength to delve into the depth that's necessary to understand the issues. So they choose the guy who says, don't worry, trust me. I'll here, here. You. You, you could come teach my class. I talk about this all the time. I mean, a lot of autocrats just exploit people's concerns about the economy. And they're not really necessarily anti-immigrant or anti-Arab or whatever. They just, you know, they exploit. They find the easy uh, the scapegoat. Yeah. It's, they want an easy way. Moshe, you talked about Rabin. So do you want to just talk about Prime Minister Rabin and what happened? Mm -hmm. I'll preface that with uh, Prime Minister Begin. 1977, he was elected for the first time 
as a prime minister and to lead the government for the first time that didn't belong to the left. And I was ready to pack my bags at the time. And it turns out that he's the guy who made the peace with Egypt. And I love it. It's great. I, I, I thank him every day. So in other words, even the most right wing of prime ministers can do the right thing when the push comes to shove and it's put in their face and they say, oh, wow, okay, let's do this. The same thing happened when Rabin was up for election. I thought, oh, no, 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 no. I can't vote for another general. We're going to have war after war with this guy. That's all the guy knows is, is the army. Turns out that he got into power and through Shimon Peres and a few other people, they made it clear to him that this is never going to end militarily. We're not going to defeat them. They're not going to defeat us. We're just going to have piles and piles of dead bodies, and it's going to continue to pile up, and the hatred will grow with every single person who dies. So let's consider this. And he went 180. He changed his direction, and he was saying, we have to make peace with the Palestinians. He didn't bring it into a matter of territory or let's end the occupation. We what have year, peace with our neighbors. What year was this, roughly? 1995, 1994-95. He was assassinated in 1995. He actually started doing the right thing. The normal human reaction to let's end this uh, suffering and let's start to see if we can do at least the right thing. Let's see. Let's try it. We've never tried it. And he was one of the people who was always uh, saying put, how to put them down. In fact, at the beginning of the Intifada, his words were, break their limbs. And we were shocked. Those of us on the left couldn't believe he said that. And there was one commander of a small unit that went into a West Bank town, and he stood at the edge of the town and told the soldiers, okay, you guys take all the houses on the right, you guys take all the houses on the left, you bring out all of the, uh, the men into the center of the house and you break their limbs. And then they heard two guns, two M16s cocked, cocked you know, chink, chink. And it turns out there were two guys, it, by coincidence, it's not a coincidence, two guys who were brought up on a kibbutz said, if anybody does that, if anybody follows that order, we will shoot. Do not follow that order. These two guys were court-martialed, and it turns out that in, the, in their trial, they were told by the judge, you are the only two people out of everybody I've heard of up until now who actually did the right thing. You're free to go and power to you. And that was what stopped Rabin in his tracks. And he said, wait, 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 wait a second. That's not legitimate. You can't do that. And all of a sudden, it started clicking. And he became enthralled with the idea of let's end the conflict. Let's at least try. Let's examine how it can be done. And because he had said that, that the ultra-nationalists said, excuse me, you are not God. You have no right to relinquish parts of the land of Israel as God gave it to us. This was given to us. If you're going to give even one inch away, you will be given the uh, curse of death. It's called in, in Latin, pulsa de nur, which means we're going to do everything we can until you die. And that means everything and anything. And one guy took it seriously. All you need is one guy with a couple of bullets to be crazy enough. And he walked up behind Rabin after there was this tremendous celebration of the fact that we're making our way toward peace here. We're doing the right thing finally. Hundreds of thousands of Israelis were celebrating in the square. We all got done singing the, the song of peace, which we adopted and made it kind of like our, our anthem for the, for the entire left. And he stepped off the stage, walked down the stairs, and at the bottom of the stairs, a Jewish man came up from behind him in his 30s and cocked his little pistol and fired three shots in his back and murdered him. Oh, assassinated God. him. And did he, was he arrested? And He was stopped on the spot. 
He had walked around there without any interference whatsoever. I remember I was doing reserve duty on the Jordanian border at the time, and I was fearful at the beginning of this demonstration that the Hamas was going to try to kill Rabin. And when I heard on the radio what was happening, I couldn't believe my ears. A Jew assassinated a, our, our prime minister? That was 1995. We were in deep mourning for years and years before something actually came about. In 2002, the Saudi plan was announced that would offer peace with Israel. Israel would be recognized with defensible borders, and all of the countries in the Arab League would accept it. And they all signed it. Most Jews don't know that and would refuse to believe it. The Arab League signed it. And the Israeli government at the time looked at it and said, mm, nope, uh -uh, not going to do that. Put it aside. In 2003, they became a group of intellectuals, former generals, former chiefs of staff, and many others joined a group of Palestinians of the same level, of the same caliber. They were invited by the Swiss government to Geneva, and they said, here's our plan. We're going we're gonna to play like we're representing our countries, our, our governments, and therefore, let's negotiate. They succeeded in negotiating everything down to the most finite details, and both sides signed what's called the Geneva Initiative Final Status Agreement. It's been waiting since 2003 for somebody to take it and say, okay, let's do this. I actually, after it was announced, I had the honor of uh, editing the entire uh, peace agreement. There were wow. small mistakes and stuff. I'm very proud of that. One of the most, unfortunately, it's been sitting in waiting ever since. And if any government was really uh, desirable of, of going the extra length, they could take that today and say, okay, you're good with this? Good. Good with this? And Not and, okay with this? Let's put this on the side. We'll talk about it later. On our next podcast with you, part two, next week, we're going to get into more solutions, but we, we have to wrap up. So I thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. I know you're very busy. Me? I've got nothing to do. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Um, thank you for offering me the opportunity. As always on Politics Considered, the views expressed by our guests are not necessarily those of the host or the show. We welcome your feedback. Please follow the show on Twitter at PoliticsCons. That wraps up this podcast. Until next time, be kind to yourself and others. Bye.